Section 65 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 15, Part 5. We were summoned away from Berlin very hurriedly. A telegram announced to me that Aunt Mary was very ill and wished to see me. I found the old lady given up by her physicians. It is my turn now, she said. For my own part, I am right willing to go. Since my poor brother and the three children were snatched away, this world has had no more joy for me. Apart from anything else, I shall never more have the strength to bear up after such a blow. I shall find the others there above. Conrad and Lily are also united there. It was not ordained that they should be united here on earth. If they had finished their arrangements in proper time, I was disposed to say in opposition. But I stopped myself. I could not surely raise any discussion with this dying person, and still less try to unsell her about her favorite theory of preordination. I have one comfort, she went on that you, at least, dear Martha, remain behind happy. The cholera has spared you, and that proves clearly that it is ordained for you to grow old in company. Only try to make of your little Rudolph a good Christian and a good soldier, so that his grandfather up in heaven may still find his joy in him. Even on this point I preferred to keep silence, for I was firmly resolved to make no soldier of my son. I will pray for you incessantly, so that you may live long and happily. Of course, I did not dwell on the inconsistency that an inevitable destiny could be influenced in one's favor by incessant prayer, but I interrupted the poor creature by begging her not to exhaust herself with talking, and, in order to distract her attention, told her about our doings in Switzerland and Berlin. I also related how we met Prince Henry, and that he had caused to be erected in the park of his castle a marble monument in memory of the bride whom he had lost as soon as won. Three days afterwards, poor Aunt Mary fell asleep, resigned and calm, fortified with a sacrament for the dying, which she had herself begged for and which she received with devotion, and thus were all my relations gone from the earth, all those in whose midst I had been brought up. In her will, the entire inheritance of her little fortune was left to my son Rudolph, and as his trustee, minister, to be sure, was nominated. This circumstance brought me now into frequent contact with this old friend of my father. He was also pretty nearly the only visitor at our house. The deep mourning into which the unhappy week at Grumitz had plunged me caused me, as a matter of course, to live in perfect retirement. Our plan of settling in Paris could not be carried out till all my affairs were put in order, and in any case, several months more would be necessary for that. Our friend, the minister, who, as I have said, formed almost the whole of our society, had in these latter days either received or obtained his discharge. I never quite fathomed the matter, but in short he had withdrawn into private life but he was still as fond as ever of busying himself about politics. 
He continually contrived to turn the conversation onto this, his favorite theme, and we also willingly took our share in it. As Frederick was now occupying himself so busily with his study of international law, any discussion was welcome to him, which touched on this province. After dinner, Mr. To be sure, for we always between ourselves made use of this nickname for him, was always asked to dine at our house twice a week. The two gentlemen would plunge into a long political conversation, but in doing this my husband took care not to let this conversation turn into the political gossip, which he so hated, but was careful to lead it to views of more general interest. In this, to be sure, Mr. To be sure, could not always follow him, for in his character as an inveterate diplomatist and official, he had accustomed himself to follow what is called practical politics, a thing which is directed merely to the private interests which lie nearest to hand and knows nothing about the theoretical questions of social science. I sat by, busy over some needlework, and took no share in the conversation, a thing which seemed quite natural to the minister, for politics is, as is well known, far too high a thing for ladies. He was sure that I was thinking all the time of other things, whilst I, on the contrary, was listening very attentively, since it was my business to impress the tenor of this dialogue on my memory, in order to transfer it afterwards into the Red Book. Frederick made no secret of his opinions, though he knew what a thankless part it is to set oneself to oppose what is generally received, and to defend ideas whilst they are in the stage when, even if they are not condemned as subversive, still they are derided as fantastic. I am in a position today to communicate to you an interesting piece of news, dear Tilling, said the minister one afternoon with an air of importance. People in government circles, that is to say, in the Ministry of War, are ventilating the idea of introducing a universal liability to service amongst us also. What? The same system which before the war was so universally condemned and derided among us? Tailors and arms, and so on? To be sure, we had a prejudice against it a short time since. Still, it has rendered good service to the Prussians, you must allow. And in fact, from the moral point of view, and even from the democratic and liberal point of view, for which you occasionally appear so enthusiastic, it is surely a just and elevating thing that every son of his fatherland, without any regard to his position or stage of education, should have to fulfill the same duties. And from a strategic point of view, could little Prussia have been always victorious if she had not had the landwehr? And, if the latter had been introduced amongst us before, should we have been always beaten? Well, the meaning of that is, that if we had had more material, the material which our enemy had would not have served him. Ergo, if the land were, were introduced everywhere, it would not benefit anybody. The war game would be played with more pieces, but the game, nevertheless, depends still on the luck and the ability of the players. I will suppose that all the European powers have introduced the obligation of universal defense. The proportion of forces in that case remains exactly the same. The only difference would be that, in order to come to a decision, instead of hundreds of thousands, millions would have to be slaughtered. 
but do you think it just and fair that a part only of the population should sacrifice themselves in order to protect the dearest possessions of the others, and that these others, chiefly because they are rich, should be entitled to stop quietly at home? No, no, that will cease with this new law. Then there will be no more buying off. Everyone will have to take his part. And it is especially the educated, the students, those who have some learning, who will contribute the elements of intelligence and therefore a victory. The other side has the same elements ready to hand, and so the advantages to be gained from educated petty officers neutralize each other. On the other hand, what remains, and equally to both sides, is the loss of material of priceless mental worth, of which the country is deprived by the fact that the most educated, those who might have promoted its civilization by means of inventions, works of art, or scientific inquiry, are set up in rank and file to be marks for the enemy's shot. Oh, well, for making inventions and producing works of art and investigating skull bones and all sorts of things of that kind which do not advance the position of the state's power one drachma. Hmm, what? Oh, nothing, go on. For all that, there remains plenty of time for people. And besides, they need not serve for the whole of their life but a few years of strict discipline are assuredly good for everybody and make them only so much the more competent to fulfill their other duties as citizens. We must, in the present state of things, pay the blood tax sometime, so it ought to be divided between all equally. There would be something to say for that if it fell less heavily on individuals on that account, but that would not be the case. The blood tax would not be divided by that measure, but increased. I hope the project may not be carried out. There is no seeing whither it may lead. One state would then try to outvie the other in strength of army, till at last there would no longer be any armies, but only armed nations. More people would be constantly drawn into the service. The length of service would be constantly increased. The incidence of war taxes and the costs of armaments constantly greater, so that without fighting each other, the nations would all come to ruin in making preparations for war. But, dear Tilling, you look too far. One can never look too far. Everything a man undertakes, he ought to think out to its remotest consequence, at least as far as his mind reaches. We were likening war, just now, to a game at chess. Politics, also, is of the same nature, Your Excellency, and those are only very feeble players who look no further forward than a single move and are quite pleased with themselves if they have got into a position in which they can threaten upon. I want to develop the thought of defensive forces constantly increasing and the universal extension of liability to military service still more widely till we reach the extremist verge, i.e., where the mass becomes excessive. What then, if, after the greatest numbers and the furthest limits of age are reached, one nation should take it into its head to recruit regiments of women too? The others might imitate it. Or battalions of boys? The others must imitate it. And in the armaments, in the means of destruction, where can the limit be? Oh, this savage, blind leap into the pit! Calm yourself, dear Tilling. 
You are a genuine faddist. If you could only point me out a means to do away with war, it would be a perfect benefit, to be sure. But, as that is not possible, every nation must surely endeavor to prepare itself, for it is as well as possible, in order to assure itself of the greatest chance of winning in the inevitable struggle for existence, that is the cant word of the fashionable Darwinism, is it not? If I should choose to suggest to you the means of doing away with wars, you would again call me a silly faddist, a sentimental dreamer, rendered morbid by the humanitarian craze. That, I think, is the cant word in favor with the war party, is it not? To be sure, I cannot conceal from you that no practical foundation exists for the realization of such an ideal. One must calculate with the actual factors. In these are classed the passions of men, their rivalries, the divergences of interests, the impossibility of coming to an agreement on all questions. But that is not necessary. When disagreements begin, an arbitration tribunal, not force, is to decide. The sovereign states would never betake themselves to such a tribunal, nor would the peoples. The peoples, the potentates and diplomatists would not. But the people? Just inquire, and you will find that the wish for peace is warm and true in the people, while the peaceful assurances, which proceed from the governments, are frequently lies, hypocritical lies, or at least are regarded as such, on principle, by other governments. That is precisely what is called diplomacy, and the peoples will go on, ever more and more, calling for peace. If the general obligation of defense should extend, the dislike of war will increase in the same proportion. A class of soldiers, animated with love for their calling, is, of course, imaginable. Their exceptional position, which they take for a position of honor, is offered to them as a recompense for the sacrifice which it entails. But when the exception ceases, the distinction ceases also. The admiring thankfulness disappears, which those who stay at home offer to those who go out in their defense, because then there will be no one to stay at home. The war-loving feelings, which are always being suggested to the soldier, and, in so doing, are often awakened in him, will be more seldom kindled. For who are those that are of the most heroic spirit, who are most warm in their enthusiasm for the exploits and dangers of war? Those who are safe against them, the professors, the politicians, the beer-shop chatterers, the chorus of old men, as it is called in Faust. When the safety is lost, that chorus will be silenced. Besides, if not only those devote themselves to the military life who love and praise it, but all those also are forcibly dragged into it, who look on it with horror, that horror must work. Poets, thinkers, friends of humanity, timid persons, all these will, from their own point of view, curse the trade they are forced into. But they will, beyond doubt, have to keep silent about this way of thinking, in order not to pass for cowards, in order not to expose themselves to the displeasure of the higher powers. Keep silence? Not forever. As I talk, though I have myself kept silent long, so will the others also break out into speech. If the thought ripens, 
the word will come. I am an individual who have come to the age of forty, before my conviction acquired sufficient strength to expand itself into words. And, as I have required two or three decades, so the masses will perhaps require two or three generations. But speak they will at last. End of section 65 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona.